This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Welcome to Move Your Mind. My name's Nick Brax, and this is a podcast where we have real conversations with real people and give real advice. My next guest does a lot of social work. We had a really interesting chat. We talked a lot about sobriety and a whole range of other topics. Rahim Thoya is a registered social worker and psychotherapist based in Toronto. Now, I've been spending quite a bit of time in Toronto and I get told off all the time because Canadians say Toronto, Toronto. So I can't really say it properly, but we say the T anyway. <laughs> um, just the same way we tease Americans when they say Melbourne, Melbourne, whereas we say Melbourne. Anyway, he's a clinical supervisor, facilitator, public speaker, sessional lecturer, and organizational development consultant. He has several books under contract that examine the mental health experiences of sexual and gender minorities. His clinical practice and writing explores the intersection of systemic oppression and mental health, along with innovation in queer relationships. Rahim, so nice to meet you, mate. Thanks for making the time to have the chat today. Thanks for having me, Nick. We finally got there. We've, this is our third device we've logged into to have this conversation. <laughs> Across all the time zones. <laughs> exactly. Ironically, not far from each other, but, you know, otherwise I would have been on the other side of the world. So uh, anyway, glad that we're able to have this conversation. So I might just jump straight in. Um, can you give me a background on yourself, what you're doing now and how you came to be doing that? Yeah. Um, well, I'm trained as a social worker based in Toronto. Um, and most of my work is as a psychotherapist and as a trainer uh, for organizations doing work around LGBTQ plus inclusivity, anti-oppression, anti-racism training. And I'm really passionate about the intersections of mental health and systemic oppression. Um, I came to this work as a queer person myself, thinking about how the environment I lived in affected my mental health. So I think about the individual nature of mental health, but also the community and society um, influences and drivers of mental health outcomes. Yeah, I mean, it's a big, it's a big topic, what, what you talk about. And I think there's so many levels to it, which I'm interested to understand. So I guess if we jump straight in, you know, trauma, in general as a as a subject um do you find most of the time it's a combination of nature and nurture is it mainly from you know events that have happened to people um what what's the main cause that you've said or one of the core things that causes trauma mm, that's a great question i tend to come from a perspective called social determinants of health um 
And even though I know that there are some genetic factors that can make people vulnerable to mental illness and to different forms of trauma, I tend to mostly think about uh, the social and environmental conditions. So for example, if you're growing up in poverty, your opportunities for employment might be more limited. And as a result, there might be more engagement with the law, more trauma from police brutality, as an example. You know, if you are pressed for money and you need to make quick money, you might buy and sell things. Uh, it could be drugs, not necessarily that give you quick turnover, but those are volatile situations, right? And they leave you vulnerable to violence, um, uh, engagement with law enforcement, conflict with other people, etc. Another quick example would be, um, you know, I think about people even in Toronto who've grown, grown up in neighborhoods where the schools have more funding versus other schools. And you just look back and think, oh, wow, this person is so well-rounded and had so many opportunities. Um, they've traveled, they've, you know, they've gone, they were part of a ski club, a swimming club, et cetera. And then people from other communities just have fewer opportunities, you know, and the fewer opportunities leaves you vulnerable in some ways. Um, and so I, I'm often thinking about the impact of the environment uh, as a queer person myself, you know, I wouldn't say that I'm vulnerable to trauma because I'm gay, but I would say I am have been vulnerable to trauma because I live in a society that's homophobic, for example. Absolutely. I think, yeah, anyone who's in a situation where you're a minority or more likely to, you know, be uh, susceptible to bullying, to discrimination, mm -hmm. whatever it is, I guess you're more likely to to suffer from it. Yeah, I would say so, you know, and then there's some things that are similar across different groups. Like, for example, a lot of my work is around substance use and addiction. And of course, people across different economic groups struggle with substances. But I would say that when it's a problem for people, it usually expresses itself differently um, based on some of your, your, um, social identities, right? Like if you come from a community that is wealthier or a family that's wealthier, you can afford really great treatment. Um, if you're not, uh, some of the things that perpetuate your desire to use, like um, poverty, chronic eviction, poor health issues, like that stuff just continues to go on and on. So it's harder. It's harder to manage or treat the addiction. You get stuck in, yeah, I guess a vicious cycle at that point because it's so hard to get out of and then it's, you know, you don't have the resource, the support to get out of the situation. So you get further stuck into it and it's like it's so, you know, you, you really need something to break that cycle. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And I think breaking that cycle is so tough. You know, you're, I, I, I know you've seen it in Australia and now that you're in America and also in Canada, there, there's some communities that have been disenfranchised for generations. And there's some people in those communities that experience upward mobility. And then there's lots of people who don't necessarily, you know. Um, but even when you do make it out, you know, out of a vicious cycle, there's still different kinds of historical trauma 
that unfortunately people experience. I know both in Australia and in Canada, that conversation usually is around indigenous communities um, and cycles of trauma um, that are hard to break out of. Absolutely. And, you know, we have a huge problem with Indigenous communities in Australia as well. Um, I couldn't believe it when I first moved to Canada. Uh, I was living in Vancouver and I didn't know anything about the, you know, homeless and drug issues in Vancouver and along Hastings Street. It's just, it's one of the worst in the world. It's crazy. It's just such a, such a huge issue that, you know, there's not really a sustainable solution to yet but it was really eye-opening seeing that yeah and i think it it is eye-opening and i think um it's hard to imagine what solutions can look like um in the face of rising cost of living poor access to harm reduction interventions um and just in like psychological safety, you know? Yeah. Uh, I know a lot of people who use substances to escape reality and I'll ask them, you know, are you using this to enhance your experience or escape? And they'll often say escape, but it started out as enhancing. And then I'll say, okay, well, what are you escaping? And they'll say, you know, like my day-to-day is so awful and I've got this really awful trauma history and during the process of using substances, I have found myself in further precarious pre- precarious situations. Um, mm. And so we can actually see how, how there is a cycle, you know, um, and how addiction can be a vulnerability in and of itself. Yeah, absolutely. And, and that makes so much sense. Um, and what, what about on the other side where you've got people who are at their life you know, for all intensive purposes is going well, you know, they're in a high paying job, they're ticking all the boxes and, but they're, you know, abusing alcohol, drugs, they're probably not even aware that they've got a problem themselves or they're in denial. They're using it to rely on a whole lot of things that are, you know, going on underneath the surface that they're they're not willing to look into or don't have the awareness to look into. Like, is, is that a, another issue that we see a lot in society? 100%. I think, when you are wealthier, so you're in the middle or upper middle class, you hide addiction in a different way. Um, but we also have to remember that drugs and alcohol are socially sanctioned to be okay in so many situations. So when I'm working with clients, it's really talking about when is this a problem for you? How do you decide? And there's this model through that I borrowed from the Center for Addiction and Mental Health here in Toronto uh, called the Four C's model. And Uh, The first C is cravings. So you experience regular cravings in addition to perhaps withdrawal symptoms. I describe cravings as you can see it, imagine it, taste it before you've even got it in your hands. Um, And then the second C is um, uh, control. And control is about frequency and amount. So if you say you're going to use whatever substance at this frequency, let's say a few times a week, and I'm only going to have this many drinks, if regularly you're, you find that you're not able to maintain control based on frequency and amount, uh, that may be another indication. So craving, control. The next C is compulsion. Uh, and a compulsion to use is about starting and not being able to stop 
but also it's about optimizing your time and your life, your schedule, uh, or rearranging your schedule to optimize opportunities to use. So if you'd rather be alone, then go with friends, be, be, be with people. Um, if you go to some parties and skip others, you know, you kind of rearrange your life so that you're around people that make you feel good about using substances. So mm. compulsion to use, optimizing opportunities to use. And the last one, the last C is consequences. Continuing to use despite consequences. And I often see a balance, right? There's a cost to everything. But if the cost outweighs the benefit, and then you continue using, that might also be a sign of a problem. So I hate to be so grim about it, because I know that drugs and alcohol can be fun. And I, I, I work from a perspective of like, yeah, alter your mind, alter your experiences. That is a good idea. And it's nice until it's not. And when it's yeah. not, we just got to really evaluate it, right? And, and that's what therapy is for, to sit down and evaluate. How is this working for me? Exactly. And it's such a balance because, you know, these things are so embedded in, in society. And I mean, I, I found it really interesting because I, I quit alcohol about a, a bit over a year ago. I completely quit. And I, it was initially, you know, you're going out with people, you're catching up with friends and you start realizing just how embedded this is into everyday life and how much of a novel thing it seems if you're not drinking when you're out with other people that, that are doing it. And, and again, it's not to say that I think the solution is everyone should quit drinking. It was just, a, you know, a personal choice I wanted to make. And I think it's healthy to be able to function within, um, in the middle where you can enjoy these things and still have a healthy life. But it can also be really difficult because we don't really, we're, it's almost like society's been gaslit as to what is healthy and what's not healthy because we mm. are just, it's so accepted. It's just so part of life. Yeah. I was watching a comedy special recently where where uh, the comedian made this joke about uh, going to a house party and the one vegan is disgusted by all of the meat items on the charcuterie board. And then suddenly that same person is doing all of the cocaine in the apartment. <laughs> and you think, uh -huh. it, it's so it's so true, though. And, you know, you hear those and I've I, I've seen that, you know, those situations so many times. It's so funny. <laughs> yeah, I. I'm interested in your journey around quitting alcohol because <laughs> I'm also almost four months without alcohol. Oh, well. And it's hard. It's It has not been easy. It's easier now than it was before, but it's socializing is still a project that I'm working on. 100%. Yeah, it's an interesting experience. And I, I didn't intend to quit for a year. I sort of felt like I wanted to have a break. And, you know, drinking hasn't been a problem for me for over a decade um, I used mm. to, you know, when I was younger, I had a, um, which is well documented in Australia, but I had a, pro yeah. you know, very, very public problem drinking and I was getting in trouble and it was binge drinking and trying to escape and whatever else. And, you know, that hasn't been a problem, but then I just found I didn't really want to be drinking yet. You know, you'd be during the week, you're catching up with a friend, maybe you're a bit stressed and you, you know, you go to an event and you have a couple of drinks and it just was so embedded in my life that I thought I just I just want to break I'm too busy um and I found it really tough for the first I'd say two to three months um yeah just finding that balance learning to be able to still go out and be around alcohol without feeling like I needed it to join in um and the longer that I sort of stayed off it the more I've really just my mindset has you know increased in the 
level of just not wanting to do it. And I just, I, I think you become more and more conscious about it as time goes on. I think, hang on, like, yeah, I could do it, but but I'd start evaluating if I did go and drink here, if I feel like I need it to, you know, have a good time with all these other people or to fit in, um, how come? Like, why can't I, what am I trying to make up for? Am I actually wanting to even be here? If I am wanting to be there, what am I trying to hide that, you know, I can't just enjoy being as I am in the, in my natural state being there. So I think it, it, it opens up this, you know, whole, you know, deeper level of thinking that you have to be confronted with, like, like so many things, like when you're in a relationship, you know, it's in your face and you're getting all of your shortcomings thrown in front of you. I think it's a really interesting process in that sense, but uh, it's the kind of thing now where I just, I can't imagine um, going back. Hey guys, if you're enjoying this podcast, please click the subscribe button, leave a like or comment, share with your friends and follow me on Instagram at Nick Brax. I really appreciate your ongoing support. Oh, that's yeah. People regularly ask me like, how long are you going to be doing this? And I said, I think it's indefinite. Like it's been so hard to not drink because you have to rediscover your life in so many different ways. Um, and you have to face some very, some very unique things that are unique to you. Right. So, you know, I'm not struggling with poverty. I'm housed. I, I don't have those same systemic barriers. Um, but when I think about what function my alcohol um, served, it was like to feel sociable, to feel desirable. It's like figuring out sober sex has been a journey as well. Um, you know, I always thought I'm such an extrovert. I can do anything. And then you're like, oh, wait, it feels weird to be at a party sober. Oh, wait, it feels weird to be naked sober. <laughs> and yeah. you really have to you really have to think about those things. And you think. Oh, I, I've only done this with with the help of alcohol. I got to figure out how to do some of this stuff on my own like that. Yeah. I can't just have my best friend with me all the time, you know, <laughs> and that's what alcohol Absolutely. was, my best friend. Absolutely. No, it's so true. It's such an interesting thing because and I felt like, you know, and I had done a lot of work on myself in different ways. And I felt like, I, you know, I used to be really shy. And then I, you know, made a career public speaking and doing all these things that I felt like I'm so I've you know come out of my shell and I'm so much more evolved in that area but then you realize even that you're putting on a front when you're doing these things and when you pull all of these you know all of the things that we hide behind like you're saying there same thing for me in so many ways you get rid of them and you're like whoa I've got a lot of work to go and there's a lot of layers here and it can be kind of scary and humbling and also once you do start exploring it though, it's, uh, it becomes exciting because you start realizing, okay, like I've been, you know, stuck in this place and now I've got this opportunity to learn and grow and discover more. And, um, as confronting as it is, this is super exciting that I'm now, uh, having this opportunity to, you know, learn more about myself and, you know, advance in those areas. Yeah. I'm, I'm appreciating just hearing you say some of those things. Uh, when you said it's exciting, I kind of thought, oh, my gosh, what? <laughs> I don't know if I've gotten there yet. Where I think it's exciting, um, but I am trying to rewrite in my mind all of the things I did successfully that I gave for which I credited alcohol, you know, making friends, being funny, being social, uh, meeting new people, et cetera. And I realized 
I might not be able to do the same kind of social performance uh, that I used to, but a lot of those characteristics are still there. And also nobody asked me to do that social performance. So I got to think about where that comes from um, and being okay with maybe not being the life of the party sometimes. <laughs> uh, well, I totally relate to what you're saying. And my biggest issue in life uh, that I'm still working on a lot to this day has been people pleasing and wanting to, you know, always be, you know, putting on a front for people, making sure that I'm making everyone feel comfortable and happy and and like you're saying there, you know, no one's actually asking us to do that. It's something inside of us, like this, you know, insecurity saying, no, we need to be accepted. We need to overcompensate. But mm. if you just be yourself and say, you know, express how you're actually feeling, people respond, you know, if not the same, even better to that. Um, and you realise, okay, like it doesn't really matter. But it's, it's, it's such a difficult thing, isn't it? It's like so, yeah. so, so it takes a long time to work on these these areas totally and i think you made a good point i think when you said um when you had a problem with alcohol that was over 10 years ago and i think our relationship to substances can change quite a bit you know when i was i'm now in my late 30s when i was in my mid-20s um if like i would go dancing almost every weekend and if there was an MDMA, I would be doing it. There's no like, I'll save this for another time. Yeah. Fast forward about 10, 12 years and. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad. And I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. You know, you could give me an idea, man. I'm gonna, I, I'm, I'm, I'm gonna take it, but I'm gonna like carefully plan out which week is worth doing that, and then block off the next day for recovery, and then not touch it again for a few months. <laughs> yes, <laughs> you <yeah>. know, like <laughs> the, my relationship has changed to that drug. It doesn't feel necessary, compulsive. I see it as fun. I can more than anticipate what the 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 lows and the negative outcomes will be. It has to be much, much, much more calculated. Um, and that's just like a personality shift, I think, over time, you know? Yeah, I love that. I love that. And being less impulsive, I guess, like when we're younger, um, we're just acting on impulse. Whatever we feel like, it's like, I've got to do this now. I want to do this. I want to do that. And, yeah. you know, you can feel like, oh, but I'm wanting to make the most of life. I'm wanting to be more present and just be, you know, get every, milk everything out of it, which in some ways, you know, maybe it does. And I don't regret any of that behavior. I'm glad that I did it when I was younger. Uh, but yeah, it it's not sustainable, I don't think, not for, not for most people. And I don't think it makes us feel very at peace <laughs> when we're only acting on impulse. Oh, yeah. No, no. I mean, I think about 
the other thing I do impulsively is shop online. And I really <laughs> yeah. slow that down because I'm also, you know, I don't need like no one needs that much stuff. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I do have a bad habit of buying books and I keep telling myself, you know what? This, this is cheaper than a whole whack of other things you could be doing. So that's I'm gonna give myself a pass for now. Um but to that point, to that end, I mean, when I think about impulsive behavior, one of the things I realize in therapy is, in my own therapy, that is, is that when I'm being impulsive, I either want to celebrate because something has gone really well, or I want reassurance and like a congratulatory hug. There's like something, there's actually a need there for being witnessed. And somehow that translates into like an impulsive choice, like a drink, a purchase, whatever. Um, uh, or um, the impulse comes from feeling out of control or a bit gloomy and wanting to just get a bit of a bump, you know? Yeah. Uh, because no pun intended. I guess that's what people do with cocaine. They get a bump. Uh, exactly. But I'm, th I'm talking a bump in mood, you know? And um, I think... And impulsive times, I need to think about what does this represent? What is what does this mean to you? What is the underlying need? Because sometimes the underlying need is like reassurance, witnessing, uh, acknowledgement, love, all of these kinds of things that actually the thing you're doing impulsively isn't going to give you. Exactly. Exactly. It's so true. It's so true. And we, you know, it's it, it just takes pausing and assessing it doesn't it to to look at yeah. that and um it's funny these behaviors that we do that we feel like are going to fill that void actually are you know only making us go deeper into it uh so it's, all, yeah. it's so counterproductive but it's just uh yeah because it's uncomfortable for us to confront that but I, I love how honest you you know you talk about all this stuff oh i you know what thank you for that and i i think as a therapist i'm constantly confronting my own yeah. demons or my just my own sense of self that's also evolving um and i i also don't have any regrets about the past i have lived in a very full way and i'm trying to figure out what living in a full way means without alcohol i'm california sober which means i you know i can still have do cannabis <laughs> uh yep. but i'm realizing you know <laughs> i don't necessarily want to do that socially so like that's fine if i'm watching tv um, yeah. And then I'm thinking, if I ask myself the same question, like Raheem, what need are you fulfilling? I'm thinking, I want comfort. I want a bit of escape. I want to enhance my experience. Like I want to. And part of that need gets met if I use a weighted blanket and have a snack. <laughs> so, yes. you know, those are just other things I think about. I'm not I'm like, I think cannabis is fine. It's not a problem for me. But I'm constantly asking myself, like, what is the need that's getting met here? What is the thing you want? Exactly, exactly. Which, yeah, that's the same process I went through where, you know, you start becoming more aware of that and trying to, yeah, assess what is, what's actually missing here. What am I looking for? So I love that. Well, you know, I, I'd love to keep, I'd love it if you can, um, you know, keep me posted on how you go on your, on your sober journey. Um, I will yeah, it's an be interesting in touch experience. for sure. For sure. Well, so back on to, you know, trauma and addiction, how how difficult is it to address these? And what, what are some of the first steps 
or even if one of my listeners um, is, you know, wanting to deal with one of these issues, what what's the first step that people can take when if they want to get help for that? Yeah, I think first people need to evaluate whether a particular substance has become a problem for them. And yep. you might do that by thinking about the four C's, craving, loss of control, um, compulsive use and consequences. And then I would say, reflect, just reflect on how your relationship to substances has changed and how have substances served you? Because when people start using something, it's for fun to socialize, to enhance their experience. But over time, new emotions come to the surface and new memories come to the surface. So think about how the substance has guided you to a new place. And what would you talk about if you went to therapy or you talked to a friend or you went to a mutual aid group like AA, for example, that has come to you as a result of your substance use, right? I don't like the idea of thinking that all substance is bad. I would suggest that there was something about the substance that helped you recognize some of the deeper issues, some of the trauma. Um, and for some people, you know, they can do a workbook like structured relapse prevention that helps them think about their readiness level, helps them do tools like the decisional balance around making a change, identifying situations that trigger desires to use. So structured relapse prevention is something that I've used in my practice. Um, and it's a series of worksheets that draws on motivational interviewing and cognitive behavioral therapy. You can do some of it on your own. You can do it through a group. I think one thing that is really, really helpful that you can't do on your own is hearing other people's stories. An incredible number of people feel like they're alone and isolated. And when they realize their substance is a problem, um, immediately they feel a lot of grief. And the grief is about two things. One is, if I stop using this, does this mean I won't have friends or I can't participate in social settings the way I used to? And two, the second part of the grief is about your own sense of self. People start to say, oh no, I'm one of the people that isn't in control. And I thought I, I would always be a person who's in control. So you're grieving mm -hmm. an idea you had about yourself. So you've got to give yourself some space to grieve. Um, and I would say, do a deep dive, listen to other people's stories, think about what works for you. You could do something like harm reduction, where you think about reduction goals that could work, and then you have to do some planning around that. And you, you, you know, the way we did around alcohol, you might say, eh, I don't know that the reduction goal is working. I think I need something more, um, a bit more drastic <laughs> for, for what I'm experiencing. So you just have to evaluate it, right, to see what you need. Yeah, absolutely. And, and yeah, when you say that, I, that's what I've actually found with quitting alcohol. I f feel like it's almost in some ways easier to completely quit than to try and limit yourself to, you know, the most I'm going to have is one drink when I go out because you don't have to, there's no decision to be made, but if you go and have one drink, you're going to slightly get, you know, you're going to, it's going to let your guard down a little bit. You might have another one and it's so hard to temper it then, but to just stop, yes. that's what a big thing I've found. Hey guys, if you're enjoying this podcast and want to learn more, I've released my first book, Move Your Mind, How to Build a Healthy Mindset for Life, where I talk about my own journey with mental health and share tips from experts on how to maintain a healthy mindset. 
You can buy the book on Amazon or through my website at nickbrax.com slash book. Yeah, it's hard to stop. And uh, for me, I like I'm, I'm a social person. It's hard for me to discern which situations I'm going to drink in and which I'm not. And if yeah. I'm doing something social every day or every two days, then I'm drinking in those times. And if every day feels, every occasion feels special, every person I'm with is certainly special. Does that mean I can have a whole bottle of wine with each of those people? Right? Because that's what I was doing. And that is a bit too much. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I, I really like what you said about taking the thinking out of it in a way or taking the decision making out of it. Because for me, that made me feel like a failure when I was like, oh, I'm going to stick to this amount. And then I'm like, oh, I can't do that. Why did I make this choice? Like, you know what? I'm going to just set myself up for success <laughs> as yeah. much as possible. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, how many, how, when, when people have addiction on any level, whether it's, you know, a small or a big one, is that most of the time, to compensate for some form of trauma. And if people had no trauma at all, I don't know if that's possible, but would we then, would addiction exist? You know, that's that's a good point. Some people do talk about um, a genetic predisposition to addiction. However, I do think most people have some kind of trauma. Um, and I do think that relate, a relationship to substances um, can begin as enhancing your experience and then it can become self-medicating or a means to an end, right? Uh, so for example, if you need connection, but you don't know, you've never had sober sex, it, the whatever substance you do becomes a means to the end, you get the connection. Um, and, you know, regardless of your background, you could have a lot of privilege in the world and still have trauma. Trauma isn't for people who are just marginalized uh, in like structural and systemic ways. Uh, trauma can look like shame, emotional neglect, absent parents, hypercritical communities, parents, siblings. Um, trauma looks like so many different things to different people. And so when you take away the substance, there's usually something underneath. So if it's not as big as PTSD or trauma, at the very least, underneath it, you're going to find some shame, anxiety, some depression, right? Yeah. So there is something underneath it to work with. Uh, and so I think about it as like, okay, you've been using something to medicate and that thing, it's just, it's yielding the same results it used to. So if you stop, let's prepare because something else is going to come up that's underneath it. Yeah, yeah. And, and how effective have you found CBT to be for dealing with a lot of these different issues? You know, um, I think CBT is a really good starting place. Um, even though that is one of the modalities I use, mm. uh, having tried to run groups and do cognitive behavioral therapy with people who are not, um, for whom it's too difficult to make a change, um, it can be really hard and they can feel frustrated. However, I think if you reframe it and instead of thinking about treating addiction, if you think about it as creating insight and building an ongoing relationship with yourself, uh, discovering your own boundaries and limits, all of those things can be successful. You know, whether it's cognitive behavioral therapy or psychodynamic therapy, um, 
I really like psychodynamic therapy. It helps us think about the unconscious. It helps us think about the impact of the past on the present. And, you know, I think if we make the goal not curing something, but rather elevating your sense of self, uh, these modalities have something profound to offer, you know? And then then the rest depends on what changes you want to see in yourself, yeah. in the world, in your life, you know? And then what's possible, right? If you're chronically stressed out, it's hard to have the space to think. Um, for me, I when I made a choice to stop drinking, I had some space to think. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah. You know, and so that's what I needed. I needed that. I needed a space to think. I also needed safe people to talk to. So if somebody told me, Raheem, you know, you could have fun without drinking, I would have said, that's crazy. Also, you don't know what my life is like. Like socializing as a gay man, being single, uh, living yeah. in the city. Like it's part of it's part of how I understand my life and my yeah. community. But I needed to have a conversation with somebody that was from my community who was like, Raheem, here's how I did it. And yes. it just hit differently. It just hit differently. So th that's what I would call a kind of psychological safety that I think is nice. Um, yeah. Yeah. I think that's so important, you know, being able to talk to people and have support from people that have been through or are going through a similar thing. It, it, it makes a dramatic difference. And and what you were talking about before as well with, you know, learning, hearing other people's stories, that's, I mean, I, I've, that's what I first started doing when I got into the mental health work. I was um, sharing my story in schools, companies, uh, different organizations, and really I've done a whole lot of things in this area, but I'd say to this day, I still haven't seen anything more powerful than just, you know, sharing stories, hearing other people's stories, because we all want to yeah. relate. And we we tell ourselves that, you know, we're unique and there some, must be something wrong with us because why are we mm -hmm. finding things so hard? But it's actually not a unique experience. Everyone's going through similar things in different ways. And we just need to hear that. Yeah. There's something, there's something very seductive about the idea that it's your situation is very unique because uh, it helps perpetuate a particular cycle. And some people yes. do have unique stories, um, but there's just so many people in the world. <laughs> that, <laughs> yes. You know, like it's a, it's a bit of a, um, what in, in, in psychoanalytic work, we might call a bit of a narcissistic injury to admit yes. that, you know, my, I might not be that different, but when I can acknowledge that and I can tolerate that injury, I can then also say, I have something to learn from other people. But if I think I'm so unique, then I have nothing to learn from other people. Right. So it well, protects you in a way. Exactly. It's another excuse to not mm -hmm. have to make that change. Yeah, that protection mm -hmm. and and you know, it 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 is it's staying in your comfort zone, even if it's painful to feel more like a victim and being being able to sort of go from that standpoint, then that protects us from having to confront these different areas. So again, none of it's easy, but um yeah, I think it really does help hearing hearing these stories. So I, I finish every episode with um five closing questions. Before I go into that, um, I just wanted to firstly ask you, what are some things that you do day-to-day um, -day or weekly for yourself to help maintain your mental well-being? Um, oh, my gosh. I'm dog-sitting for friends all the time because that feels good for me. Love um, that. I prioritize masturbation, <laughs> even though that sounds weird. <laughs> But I just feel like that's important. Um, I prioritize sleep. I make sure I get a lot of sleep. Um, 
And I'm trying to uh, take advantage of sunlight. So it's winter right now. The days are short. It's I'm really affected by the gray skies. So when it's sunny, I try to take advantage of that. Yeah, I mean, that's so important as well. Yeah, and in yeah. this part of the world, yeah, you need to do that because it can get pretty depressing. So, yeah, I love yes. that. Well, thank you for sharing all of that and thank you for being so open. I've yeah, t- taken a lot out of this. Um, the five closing questions, these can be sort of yeah. just, you know, whatever answer comes to mind. The first one is, what is your best childhood memory that comes to mind? I'm immediately thinking about this time in senior kindergarten where I was riding a tricycle around in the playground and I was wearing a, a full gray, it's like a jumpsuit, but it was the snow pants <laughs> with mittens built in um, and I had a little hat on and I was just riding my bike all over. I love that. I could picture it. <laughs> <laughs> What do you think is currently the biggest burden on mental health in society? Uh, capitalism, financial stress, nonstop competition, cost of living, that kind of thing. Yeah, they're big ones. They're massive ones. What's your personal definition of happiness? Um, my personal definition of happiness, that would be finding ways to really feel good about myself in relation to the people I love and the communities um, I feel strongly connected to. Yeah. What are you most afraid of? Failure. I'm also, in particular, I think, have a big fear of... um, failing in a romantic relationship yeah which is a big one for so many people Mm -hmm. what are you most proud of um the community i've carved out for myself um i'm incredibly lucky to have a beautiful group of friends and a nice community um but i also feel proud that i've worked at maintaining that and 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 kept really great people around i love it well yeah thank you again for being so open um where can we send our listeners if they want to learn more about you or the work you're doing um well they can visit me um at all my links which is ladyadavan.com adavan is a-t-i-v-a-n just like the anxiety medication (laughs) so it's ladyadavan.com and you can get all my links there there you go we'll put them in the show notes so make sure to check them out and yeah Rahim thank you again for making the time I've really enjoyed connecting with you and yeah I really appreciate it thanks for having me thanks to Rahim Thoya for joining me today for Move Your Mind also a huge thank you to those of you listening I really appreciate your support if you'd like to learn more or connect with me personally visit www.nickbrax.com or send me a DM on Instagram at nickbrax Please don't forget to click the subscribe button, leave a like or comment, share with your friends, and follow me on Instagram. It really makes a difference. Thank you so much. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. 
I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.